Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, The sequence was already remarkable. The day after he fired James Comey, the FBI director investigating his campaign's ties to Russia, President Trump met with top Russian officials at the White House. Now we know Trump revealed highly classified information about ISIS at that meeting. And how efforts by the United States government to protect against a massive cyber attack may have enabled one. It's Tuesday. May 16th. We can't have someone in the Oval Office who doesn't understand the meaning of the word confidential or classified. So Matt, I have so many questions for you. Remind us of the scene of this meeting last week at the White House. So... Tuesday evening, at nearly 7 o'clock, news breaks that mm-hmm. Trump has fired James Comey, the director of the FBI. Matthew Rosenberg reports on the intelligence community. They say it's over the Clinton investigation, but it's really confusing. Obviously, the FBI has been investigating the ties between associates of Trump mm-hmm. and Russia and the Russian election meddling. So that's kind of like huge, dominant news. And then on Wednesday, Trump has this meeting in the Oval Office with the Russian foreign minister, And the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, Mm -hmm. who's at the center of this FBI investigation because he kept meeting with Trump associates during the campaign and the transition. And on top of of having this meeting, American photographers and reporters aren't even let in. It's only the Russians who get to go in. That's the only reason we find out. We see these pictures of Trump smiling with these guys. They seem very chummy. The whole thing is just totally dissent. It's it's just – The words fail you. The world's fair. I've got no words. The optics are are just bizarre, I guess, is a way of putting it. It's, right. it's not standard operating procedure in Washington. Let's just put it that way. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is very unusual. All right. So what do we know now about what President Trump said to those two Russian officials in the Oval Office? So I think the first thing i got to say is hats off to our colleagues at the Washington Post who broke this story. Mm-hmm. It is it is a stunning story, and I'm just glad we were able to quickly match it. What it looks like, what he said was Trump got really excited and kind of told Lavrov, foreign minister, and Kislyak, the ambassador, hey, you know, you won't believe the intelligence I get to see. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got great stuff here, you know, and starts talking about this incredibly sensitive intelligence about an Islamic State plot to kind of use laptops, plant explosives in them in ways that can't be detected, wow. and then blow up airliners. And, and like, that's, you know— 
all right, you share some intel with the Russians. We do cooperate, but our cooperation with them is very limited, and this is really mm -hmm. sensitive. And what makes it so sensitive is that it came from an ally. It wasn't American intelligence. And the kind of etiquette of the intelligence world is that the people who develop the intelligence kind of get to dictate how it's used. Right. So inside the government, if the CIA develops some intelligence, they dictate to the NSA, the FBI, and whomever how it can be used, who it can be shared among, mm -hmm. you know, who gets to see it. If it comes from an ally, the ally gets to say, okay, we're going to let you see this, but you can't share it with anyone else, or we'll let you see this, you can share it with Britain, you can share it with the Dutch, whomever. And in this case, the ally in question, given it to the US and said, you can't share this with anyone, and has repeatedly warned, not just now, but apparently at other times, that if there was ever a breach of this kind of information, the Americans ever shared it mm -hmm. in ways they weren't supposed to, this ally would not share information like this in the future. Matt, you keep referring to this ally. It's very tantalizing. Which ally? We, we're not saying. But we're not saying for, I assume, a set of editorial or maybe national security reasons? Yes. I guess um, the idea is that if he shared it, doesn't mean we have to share it? Yes. I mean, it's, it's a little tricky. So the White House basically isn't just not responding to us. Um, other American intelligence officials have, have asked that we not do this, saying, you know, that we could literally destroy the intelligence gathering on this plot, we mm -hmm. could put lives in danger. Look, these are really difficult considerations. Um, but it was a Middle Eastern ally, it's a close ally, that is made it very clear they would be very upset if this kind of thing were shared. Got it. And now it's been shared with the Russians. Matt, how important, just how sensitive and potentially dangerous is the sharing of this information you're describing and the plot and the sourcing that can maybe be implied from it, or is it not about the specifics of the information, but that classified information was shared at all? It's it's kind of a little bit of both. And let me step back for a second sure. and explain how this kind of got out, which was there are a few people in the room, there's a note taker there. Mm -hmm. The note taker then writes up a summary of the meeting. When the summaries got distributed among the National Security Council staff, a number of staffers saw it and were like, whoa, this is way too sensitive. Hmm. To be shared even among many American officials shouldn't be seeing this because it's that highly classified. It's what they call code word classified. And that then sparked this kind of, what do we do about this? We got, we got to deal with it. Given that, that concern, there may have been a level of detail in this conversation that even if you don't tell the Russians how they got this intel. They can kind of reverse engineer it and figure that out. Right. There's also the thing too, is that they can figure out which allies collecting this. And like any power, knowing what people can collect, what kind of intelligence another country can collect, that's valuable intelligence. Okay, so then there's the question of who Trump decided to share this information with. Our big, complicated, sort of ally adversary, Russia. Would this be the same reaction if President Trump had shared the same information with, for example, the prime minister of Australia or the prime minister of Israel or any other country? Um, I doubt it. If we share this with a clear ally, I suspect, you know, we could go back to the ally and say, hey, can you mm -hmm. just go easy with that? I mean, Russia is like America's number one frenemy, I guess is the only way to describe it. And I think that to a lot of our allies in the Middle East, they see Russia and Russia's support for Syria and Iran as hostile. Mm -hmm. And they to don't the look, U.S. right to the to the U.S. and to themselves, and so for a number of American allies in the Middle East, they don't see Russia as an ally or as a friend, and that we're now giving this information to the Russians is something I would imagine is going to alarm them. Do we have any indication at this point of how this unnamed ally is reacting to the news of the disclosure? Hold on, one second. I'm just responding to an editor on Slack. 
apparently. Do what you got to do. In the middle of all this, Kushner flipped out at Spicer and like yelled at him about all the bad press they've been getting. Hmm. Um, so um, we don't know. Okay. So Matt, what do you know about their reaction from inside the White House as the disclosure of the disclosure was disclosed? So it, it looked like they went into immediate crisis mode. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Sean Spicer and Mike Dubka, the communications director, being summoned to the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. You had National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster kind of came around a corner and found himself just surrounded by reporters and actually said to them, this is the last place in the world I wanted to be. And before mm-hmm. he, like, ducked out a back door, he then, a little while later, is coming out to read a fairly forceful denial, flat saying this isn't true, it didn't happen. But they seem to be parsing their words very, very carefully. McMaster and others have been saying that, that the president did not discuss any sources or methods and that he did not discuss any military operations that weren't already public. The thing is, is nobody's saying he did that. They're saying he provided very granular details of intelligence that was developed by an ally, not how that intelligence was collected or, mm-hmm. you know, that there was some military operation going on. So it's it's an odd denial because they're denying something incredibly forcefully that nobody's saying happened. Mm. At some point also in this whole mess, Kushner, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, apparently started yelling at Sean Spicer and, and some of the comms people because they're just incredibly frustrated with the Brad press generally. Mm. What I've been told is is they really thought if they sent H.R. McMaster, who's the national security advisor, and Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, and Dina Powell, one of the deputy national security advisors, out there making these on-the-record denials immediately could just quash the story make it go away and that didn't happen that didn't happen because the denials aren't really addressing what's being reported matt what are the possible consequences of this for president trump overall let's start with abroad i mean abroad i think there's have been questions from the get-go about leaks to the russians and others and that a lot of american allies have been wary of sharing intelligence with us. Mm. And I I think a lot of Americans have this idea of us as this kind of omniscient intelligence kind of national security state. And we do have an astounding amount of surveillance that Mm -hmm. goes on around the world that's done by Americans. But the U.S. intelligence agencies rely tremendously on foreign partners. If there's a signal to any of them, like, yay, we may actually not keep your secrets, Mm. they may not be so willing to hand them over. That would be a really big issue. And I know that from my own experience in the Middle East and in Afghanistan and in Africa, the Australians, the Brits, the United Arab Emirates. I mean, without their knowledge, there's a lot the U.S. wouldn't be able to do. I mean, with that in mind, can you think of other previous examples of something like this happening, especially at this level? No. Okay. Matt, when it comes to classified information, what are the rules surrounding what the president can say or what he can't say? So the president can disclose almost anything he wants. Mm. He can't really violate the rules on classified information. So if this were anybody but him, they would almost instantly be fired and they could face criminal charges, um, serious criminal charges. But the president has tremendous power to declassify almost anything as he sees fit. Normally, there's a process to this. And you saw that with the Russia election interference assessment that was done in January where Obama and the intelligence community, they went through what they were going to put out and how they were going to classify it. And in the end, we didn't get a lot of details, Um, whereas this one, Trump can just say what he wants, whenever he wants. And once he says it, he's, by fact, he's president, declassified it. Matt, people have been quick to draw comparisons to the presidential campaign. A few thoughts now on the candidates and classified information. Donald Trump today received his first classified intelligence briefing. The Republican nominee also questioning whether Hillary Clinton should be trusted with the same information. 
Well, I'm worried about her getting it because of her email situation. When Trump and other Republicans were just brutalizing Hillary Clinton for using a private email server for classified information. Well, you know, what's wrong with you? If you didn't know the basics of classified information, how could you possibly have been our secretary of state? And how can you possibly be our president? At this point, we're used to hearing President Trump contradict himself with some frequency. But now we've got, like, every senior Republican on the record. So it stands to reason that individuals who are, quote, extremely careless, close quote, with classified information should be denied further access to that type of information. Saying that there should be punishment for doing something like this. You know, as they say, facts are stubborn things. So why don't we remind ourselves of some of the facts? Here's, here's a fact for you. Mishandling classified information is a crime. Could that fact and that history force something here that might not otherwise happen? I don't know if we're there yet. Um, I think, though, there is growing discomfort among many Republicans with the general disorder in the White House Mm -hmm. and that this is certainly not going to help matters. And any of them who saw the Comey firing and other signs as troubling are going to be troubled by this as well. This really does raise an issue, though, for a lot of Republicans who campaigned very hard on the Hillary Clinton email server question. And there was some classified information on the server. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a whole lot, but it was there. But we do know that there's never been any evidence that it was shared with anyone, the public, an ally, and never mind an adversarial nation. Now we have a clear-cut case of the president taking incredibly classified information, information that was probably more sensitive than anything that we know about on that server, and sharing it with the foreign minister of a country that, that just finished trying to interfere in the American election and opposes U.S. interests in many parts of the world. Matthew, thank you very much. You're welcome. On Monday night, after learning of the classified disclosure, Republican Senator Bob Corker, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was particularly outspoken in his criticism of the Trump White House. Obviously, they're in a downward spiral right now and have got to figure out a way to come to grips with all that's happening and the the chaos that is being created by the by the lack of discipline, it's it's creating a worrisome environment. We'll be right back. How do we return to the classroom? A new series on the Optimistic Outlook podcast presents a solution. Subscribe to hear Siemens USA CEO Barbara Humpton address the ventilation debate and learn how we can help schools reopen today. That's the Optimistic Outlook, available wherever you listen to podcasts. The Times is reporting that North Korean-linked hackers appear to be behind the massive cyber attack that has crippled computer systems around the world over the past four days. U.S. intelligence officials and private security experts both tell The Times that tools used by North Korean hackers in attacks like the one against Sony in 2014 were also used in this latest attack. But they warned that it could be weeks or months before they're confident enough to officially accuse North Korea. But my colleague David Sanger found that no matter who carried out the attack, it may have been the United States who made it possible. This was what's called ransomware. So you go in, you turn your computer on, you go to get your data, and you discover that somebody has encrypted your entire hard drive, Hmm. and you don't know the code to get in. And then you get a little note saying, send me the equivalent of $300 in Bitcoin. (laughs) 
and I'll unlock your computer for you. Now, of course, if your data is important enough to you and it's time sensitive, you might well be tempted to just pay the ransom. And that's what the hackers are betting on. So just how widespread was this attack? How many people woke up and saw that pretty alarming message on the computer screen? Well, we don't have a real great sense of numbers, but we know that it started or we became aware of it first when this hit British hospitals in the national health system. And there it looks like a good percentage of their hospitals uh, turned on their computers and discovered that they were getting this demand. What we quickly discovered was that the place that got the most infections was Russia. Hmm. But it was all through Europe, and we've had some reports in Asia as well. And, of course, this had started with a very typical, you know, phishing email where you click on something you're not supposed to click on, and suddenly you've loaded the code in. So it's going to be a while before we figure out how many thousands or tens of thousands of computers or networks are infected in this and how quickly it can be neutralized. David, there was talk from early on that the software or the strategies used in this attack had come from the United States government. And you've been doing some new reporting on that. What did you find? Well, what we found was that the United States had gone out and looked for vulnerabilities in systems. They do this all the time. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of people dedicated to it. And there are always a lot of vulnerabilities. So basically, they're the equivalent of somebody who goes out casing the neighborhood looking for open mm -hmm. windows or windows they can jimmy open. And in this case, the NSA had found this vulnerability in Microsoft software, and we don't know how long they've been sitting on it. Now, hmm. somehow, it got out of their safe. But at some point last summer, around August, a number of tools and vulnerabilities that the NSA had developed showed up on a website by a group that called itself the Shadow Brokers. Hmm. We don't know exactly how and made it into the hands of people who then took the vulnerability and used it to go develop the tools that created this ransomware. Hmm. So it's a little bit like leaving a weapon out on the <laughs> battlefield and some adversary comes along and picks it up and says, you know, I can take this explosive right. and build a rocket around it and launch it at someone. So let me get this straight. You're saying that the NSA found a vulnerability and didn't tell anyone. That's right. Now, we think at some point after it was gone, they did go and tell Microsoft because in March, Microsoft issued a patch for this, a way to update your software mm -hmm. so that you wouldn't be subject to this vulnerability. And the problem with that is that just because Microsoft issues a patch doesn't mean everybody goes out and does what Microsoft says to go do. Right. A good analogy to this would be Takata airbags in your car. You know, you get a letter in the mail from Toyota or Honda that says, we're terribly sorry to tell you, uh, Mr. Barbaro, that uh, right. you've got one of those bad airbags. And if it explodes while you're driving, it might kill you. So please go to the dealer and get it fixed. But not everybody immediately drives off to the dealer or they mm -hmm. may say, ah, I've got such an old car. I'm going to get rid of it soon anyway. I'm not going to bother. And that's a little bit about the problem with patching because until it becomes automatic, then there's no way of assuring that the patch is actually executed. I have to say, David, you are a wonderful spinner of analogies. Well, thanks. You know, it's what us reporters work on. <laughs>
especially when your beat is writing about something as impenetrable as cyber attacks. So it seems like the key question is, do we know who took this information from inside the National Security Agency, the NSA? My reporting has shown there's a a sort of new theory around among senior members of the intelligence Mm -hmm. uh, world that there's an insider, maybe Mm -hmm. somebody they haven't caught yet within the NSA or maybe a contractor because they use a lot of contractors who had access to these tools and stole them, maybe sold them, maybe gave them away for some other reason. We don't know. Uh, and that that's how they got out. And just technically, if somebody inside the NSA were to have gotten hold of this, could they literally just hand it over to somebody who would then use it maliciously? How exactly does that work? Well, it depends on how good the NSA's um, internal controls are. You know, when Edward Snowden took uh, material from the NSA four years ago, he downloaded it on USBs and and other medium and walked out with it, and there was no warning system about how that could happen. The NSA has said that since that time, they put in extensive warning systems. So one of the mysteries here is how could someone get away with this in a post-Snowden era? So one thing I've been trying to understand is why did this attack seem to impact the United States less than other countries? It's a really interesting question. It's one we're still working on. But one possibility is that we're actually better at patching our systems Hmm, and updating them than other countries are. Hospitals are notoriously slow in doing this kind of thing. It's Mm -hmm. expensive and people are worried about not having access to the patient data while they are doing the updates. That may help explain it. Um, It would also explain why Russia got hit more because they may be using a lot of bootlegged copies of Microsoft operating systems and uh, Microsoft doesn't update the bootlegs. That's really fascinating. David, finally, what are the unanswered questions for you now and what are you still trying to figure out? Well, there are a lot of unanswered questions. How did the NSA lose control of this? If the United States is going to go down the road of developing and using cyber weapons, and very few people doubt that they need to go do that, why can't they keep better security on them? Now, maybe we'll figure this out. Remember, in the early days of nuclear weapons, we didn't have any locks on those nuclear Hmm. weapons. If you stole the nuclear weapon, you could go detonate it. And then somebody looked around and said, you know, (laughs) this is really stupid. And we developed something called PALs or permissive action links that have a series of codes and you can't detonate the weapon without that. We're not there yet in malware. Sounds like we maybe should, though. (laughs) Pretty soon. Sure does sound, you know. (laughs) Um, David, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Here's what else you need to know today. We are releasing newly declassified reporting and photos that underscore the depths to which the Syrian regime has gone. The Trump administration has released satellite images of what it says is a crematory at a military prison outside Damascus, built by Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad, to hide evidence of thousands of people executed every year by the government at the prison complex. Although the regime's many atrocities are well documented, we believe that the building of a crematorium is an effort to cover up the extent of mass murders taking place 
in Sednaya prison. The Times reports that the timing of the announcement suggests President Trump is seeking to embarrass Syria and its allies, Russia and Iran, into negotiating an end to Syria's deadly civil war. And President Trump will meet today with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the latest in a series of authoritarian leaders who Trump has welcomed to the White House. Since taking office, Erdogan has purged his perceived enemies, arrested tens of thousands of people, and shut down more than 100 media organizations. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. Why does quicksand work so slowly? Question everything. That's what Hyundai did. It's how they created the all-new Hyundai Tucson, with available innovations like a huge 10 and a quarter inch infotainment screen and digital key technology, allowing you to use your smartphone as a spare key. And you always get Hyundai's complimentary maintenance for three years or 36,000 miles. Test drive the 2022 Hyundai Tucson at your nearest Hyundai dealer or learn more at HyundaiUSA.com.